is to encourage your personal study of, uh, of the Apocalypse. And, and we have, as we noted, uh, material that's been furnished to us by the writers of a hundred years ago and uh, those who have followed on the uh, historical theme of the Apocalypse that, that's very helpful and nourishing to us. The book of Eureka, or volumes, uh, as you can, if you want to do a little mathematics, you can go to this last part of the book and see where volume 1A ends, and uh, 1 uh, that is, and starts with 2A, and you can add them up, and there's about 1,600 pages. That, that's in this, uh, what we call a red volume. And uh, that has been discouraging to a lot of people. They say, well, you know, that's, that's just too long for me to pick up and read. That, that actually has reference to this sixth point that we had on the inside front cover, that the contents of the apocalyptic message must not be ignored or set aside as being too difficult, or I could add there, too lengthy to grasp. It is addressed to God's servants, and it is not a special intellectual sec segment who are trained in the wisdom of this world. In fact, the intellectual will not perceive the message, but those grounded in the essentials of the simple gospel will be the receptive and appreciative ones. That's sort of in concert with, uh, with number two there, which says that one of our foundational principles is a uh, knowledge of the gospel as preached by Christ and the prophets. Uh, so don't be discouraged. In fact, I would like for you to take, and this is only one person's approach, starting at page 9 where we have the index to Eureka. If you'll take your pencils and turn over to page 10, I, I'm, I have marked about four uh, page numbers that I would highly recommend. I, I nearly want to say that if you would read and reread these little sections, you would be uh, encouraged to read a whole lot more. But you go to page 10 and circle page 72, 80, 87, and 92. There's a section there on the manifestation of deity in, in progressive stages that uh, is extremely uh, interesting and helpful. Then the next one I've marked is page 13, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, on page 10, uh, the right-hand side there gives you the page number, 72, 80, 87, and 92. They're in consecutive order there. Then on page 13, the chronological tableau of the apostasy, the top of the page, page 367. Now, that chronological layout will tell you what we're talking about from year one to year two to year three and it helps us in the uh, historical development of the events that have gone on. And then on page 14, the tabular analysis of the Apocalypse is extremely uh, helpful in, in giving you all of the uh, events and dates of the uh, seals and trumpets and vials and the uh, progressive events of the Apocalypse. That's, that's a, a very noteworthy page, and I think I have one or two more. Uh, page 19, uh, item number 10 there, page 287, on the synopsis of the times of Daniel and John. Now, to just pick out three or four or five numbers like that is, uh, in a sense, not doing justice to Eureka, but as I said, I think if you'll read, the, some of those are what we would call more or less uh, uh, 
uh, expositional material, but the one on the manifestation of deity is one, one that is uh, extremely enlightening, beneficial, helpful, and uh, exhilarating, really. Somebody, I don't know who it was, I believe it's somebody in our, our time, no, no special person, I guess any of us are not uh, special bright lights of any kind, but they have said, and I certainly agree with this assessment, that the first volume of Eureka is the most noble literary work that the Christadelphian body has ever produced. Uh, and again, that's not to say volume two and volume three are lacking in any respect, but the subject material is handled in such a way, the introduction, uh, which I suppose, in one way of looking at it, is sort of a selling point. If we're going to say, I would like for you to study Revelation or the Apocalypse, uh, I don't know if it was organized this way, but, but the author has said, uh, here are the preliminaries and the whys and the wherefores, and should you read that first half of the uh, volume one, I think you would be so sold on the uh, idea of saying it that you would continue on with the rest of the volume in volumes two and three. About, uh, it was either two or three years ago, I was here and uh, I asked a question. I don't know if anybody remembers it. Uh, and it, and it, it's, a, it's a very uh, usual statement or part of our vocabulary, and that is the word spiritual. And I think I asked the question, uh, what is it? Or identify it or, or give me a, a definition. And uh, we use the term, we say this is, this is spiritually discerned. And, and that's really part of the lesson material we're trying to present, to discern the apocalypse. It's not going to do us any good, as we've already said, to say, well, I'm sure that the year 312 or the year 325 is, is uh, all that important. And, and uh, well, I sort of project this to the judgment seat of Christ. We're not going to be asked uh, who the descendants of Nebuchadnezzar were, even though they're very important in the overall scheme. And we're not going to be asked to name and order the judges of Israel or the kings of Israel, even though, again, this background is a necessary ingredient to our overall faith. But the spiritual application of these things uh, really generate or come to the point of saying, if you do know something about Nebuchadnezzar or uh, Ehud or Shamgar or, or uh, Josiah, what, what does it do for you? What, uh, uh, do we learn about Adam and Eve just so we know that there are two people and that they did certain things uh, either mechanically or, or otherwise? It's the spiritual import or impact uh, that's important. And likewise with this study or any other that we enter into. Spirit, I still don't have a definition. And, and that I, if somebody said to me, well, you, you ask the question, give me an answer. I, I really don't know that I can. I might strive to. Uh, you know, there's a spiritual tie between a mother and her child. Uh, whatever that is. Uh, it's, it's really, uh, I think, identified in the Bible as either the heart or the mind. And certainly, when we try to digest what the uh, various scriptures give to us, if we digest them or place them in our hearts or minds, there's sort of a uh, current between our thinking apparatus and our receptive apparatus to this word. 
So if we are unable to discern things spiritually, we're really separated or divorced from the uh, from the word. Just as a mother, we say a mother and her child, there's a, there's a very strong spiritual tie there. As we all know, and many of us have had experience, when the child gets to be 14, 15, 18, or 20 or something, sometimes that tie disintegrates very, very much to the disappointment of, uh, of the parent. And that can be true with our uh, spiritual ties with our Bible. We, if we neglect this or, or have other interests that exceed our interest in the Scripture, uh, we're going to find that to be the case. Uh, how many books are there in the Bible? All right, there's 66 books. They're all, again, I, I think this is a great chart for everybody to have. Uh, how many chapters are there in the Bible? 1,079. Well, that's not the number I've got. <laughs> Where'd you get your information? I don't know. It's, uh, uh, let me tell you, it's in uh, most people here. I bet a good majority of this group has either Smith's Bible Dictionary or Pelibus, which are, I think are the same thing, or some other Bible Dictionary. Maybe, I, in fact, I looked in the back of the Companion Bible. I didn't find it uh, yesterday. Uh, I believe it's 1187 is the number I have, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, the reason I'm asking this question is it's sort of a statistical outline. If there's 66 books and there's 1187 chapters, I'm going to round off to 1,200. Uh, how many chapters in Revelation? 22. So what, what percentage of the Bible are we talking about? What, what is 22 to 1,200? 2%. 2%. That's, uh, we got some mathematicians here. So would you say that, uh, that any part of the Bible, Revelation or other, that uh, that 2% of it is, is uh, valid as a, uh, that's all I need to know. Well, I don't either. Uh, uh, and yet we're promoting, or trying to promote your interest in this Bible, but not at the exclusion, or this book, but not at the exclusion of the other books. And as we've already said, and as the author of Eureka says, if you don't have a basic understanding of the gospel, if you don't know there's going to be a kingdom or that man's mortal, then entering into the study of Revelation is not going to be very interesting or helpful. So here we're talking of uh, 2% of the Bible. How many verses in the Bible? <laughs> and this is not, not worth the papers written on either. Uh, it, it's in the dictionary. Uh, it's about uh, 37,000. And I believe about, about 3 million words. Uh, and in this dictionary, it says, this has been verified, I think these counts, by two, at least two separate people, and this was far before the computer age. And I think it said the man spent three and a half years counting these verses, words, and what have you. And it just makes you sort of ask the question, uh, if I had three and a half years and I come up with a count of three million words, how much better I could have spent my time on reading a few verses or a few chapters that tell me something. So whether it's three million or ten million really means nothing. But the content of the word is divinely organized in such a way as we see it here uh, to provide us with this information. There's a verse I want to go to in Matthew 25 and verse 26 that has a little bit of 
uh, relation to what we're trying to address. Yep. This is in, in the parable of the talents. His Lord, Matthew 25, 26, His Lord answered and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sow not, and gather where I have not strawed. Now in this parable, uh, what, what has caused this servant to be rejected? Uh, yes, I, I guess that would be the answer I would I would give. What, what is the explicit word that he uses in this verse? Well, it really uses two words, doesn't it? Wicked and slothful. Now, I don't know. I'm not trying to present any new interpretation on this thing, but the, but the word slothful is what I'm aiming at. And it's because of this point number six that we make on the inside cover. And... and uh, whether or not this applies to us, we just merely have to ask the question. Have I been slothful in the approach to Revelation? Have I been one of those people that say, well, look, I'd rather read the Psalms or the Gospels, and I get more good out of that, and that's, that's, that's helpful, and uh, I'm going to stick or confine my reading to uh, passages that just are easier to understand and make sense to me. Uh, I feel, as we said earlier, if we face the judge in that uh, day of judgment, and we, we come up with this answer, if, if it's posed. Uh, well, what about this book? Did you, did you just totally uh, disregard it? You don't think it's there for any good purpose? It's not inspired? It's not useful? Not helpful? Uh, I think that being the case, that very well we might receive this commendation of saying, look, you've been sloth. You know, you had it here. It's offered to you. It's presented. Maybe it is difficult in some respects, but it is inspired. It's given to us. I, I have just as much right to throw out the book of Nehemiah or Song of Solomon because they're hard as I would Revelation. And uh, it's something I think we should think about. And there's no set time to start it, but there's no set time to defer it either. So let's uh, make an effort, wherever we are, privately or ecclesially or what have you, to give our attention and not be of a slothful nature. Uh, it's been an observation of mine that uh, we're very characteristic of, of, uh, of all humanity and that we want a quick fix. If somebody says, uh, here's a book 800 pages long, you say, give me the condensed version with 50 pages. Or if somebody says, let's study this book, well, no, let's don't study, just tell me what it says. I, I, I want this thing in two minutes, five minutes. Actually, we could ask ourselves, is it going to be worth anything if, it's, if somebody can explain it in two minutes? Uh, I think we all would agree that probably not. Uh, I can't see everybody here in the audience very well, but uh, I was going to ask Mac over here. Uh, did you ever have any earlier years in your life where uh, maybe you made three to $500 a year? He has. I, I don't know his background. Uh, would you say that today you appreciate values and things a little more because of that? I think so. I do too. Roger, did you used to work for $12 a week? Sure did. <laughs> well, uh, 
we're not measuring things in, in dollars or anything like that, but uh, uh, Ned, I imagine when you graduated from high school, your father said, uh, best I can do is get you a new Oldsmobile and maybe send you to Europe for a couple of weeks. Is that, that what happened with you? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, values have changed, and uh, and we all know in this audience that uh, the uh, uh, children today. I, I guess we can say we don't begrudge some of these things, but but they graduate from high school, we, they get a new car, and they get this and they get that. They go to college, they come out and they say, well. Uh, I, I'll work for you. I'll, I'll be glad to start for about 35000 a year, and I want a lot of dentist coverage and medical coverage and four weeks vacation and company car, and, and I'll give you my, my real services, which means six hours a day maybe, and, and plenty of breaks and rest periods. This is the values that the uh, Western society has come down to, and I don't know exactly how to relate that to, to effort and... Uh, uh, in energy input or what have you to the study of the book but I think it has a, a, a relationship is that we're, uh, we're a quick fix generation we're a spoiled generation and therefore we sort of look for society to take care of us and they're not going to take care of us in the Bible I can't stand here and say look I, I can give it to you you've got to get it you've got to have the interest and got to have the self input into this thing uh, if it's ever going to mean anything to you. I think we mentioned yesterday how we, uh, certainly not me alone, but uh, probably at this very Bible school, people started in Brother Jennings' class in Revelation. First time through, it's kind of a little bit of a fog. And the second time, it clears up a little bit. And the third time, a little bit more. That's how these things are attained. But if we have the uh, silver spoon that's handed to us, say, oh, here's Revelation in three pages, we're not going to get it. It's not there. I'm going to interrupt this uh, subject matter to make a, an announcement that I don't have any right to make, but I'm not a member of the Bible school group. But I was told that, uh, that not only, maybe, I don't know about this year, but in past years, people have failed to pay their tuition here at the school, either forgotten or, or, or whatever. So if there's anybody here that hasn't put their money on the table, the Bible school has to be supported. I want to just spend just another minute or two on this uh, front inside cover. Uh, you see the six points we laid out there. Three and four are probably uh, synonymous. I, I feel that this God manifestation is the major theme, not only of the Apocalypse, but of the Bible. In 1 Timothy 3.16, there, there is... Evidence here, I think, that uh, helps us see this. First Timothy 3:16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, which was through Christ, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. So Paul, writing to Timothy, is saying that the principle through which God is working is the manifestation of himself in somebody else, which is uh, identified here by several phrases, and uh, we don't have a direct statement here that this involves somebody else 
plus his brethren or others, but we that's inferred and we will see it in other uh, references. Second Peter one and four. Also is a is a verse we can use to uh, uh, support this thought. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Now what is the divine nature? Immortality. immortality. All right, we learn ac academically that immortality probably is the uh, uh, opposite of mortality. When a person is mortal, uh, he's capable of dying, and, and generally he, he dies and wastes away and, and as though he had not been. Uh, immortality is the immunity to dying and wasting away and, and being forgotten. Uh, but there's more to it than that. And in the God manifestation scheme of things, uh, not only are we just talking of a, of a person who is, is uh, non-dying. In fact, I believe Brother Thomason in Eureka says, a rock is immortal. If you, if you stop and think about it. It may not be if you get into the scientific uh, facts of where it may have started and, and so many thousands of years and now it might, might decay or turn back. But, but basically, there are uh, minerals or inanimate things that we can say are never dying or eternal or something like this. So there's more to it than just everlasting uh, perpetuity of, uh, of nature. There is a moral uh, relationship that, that the immortal uh, acquires at his investiture with immortality that makes him not only uh, ever living, but it makes him ever good. So involved in this God manifestation are what, what the term Brother Thomas frequently used, consubstantiality, is a moral uh, investiture as well as a physical. So, as we know with the angels, it's impossible that the angels can go out and sin. Uh, and so it will be that those who are in the immortal group in the age to come will, will be free from sin. They'll be free from death. They'll be free, free from all of these impurities that we see that are attached uh, to mortality. In uh, one other definition or question, I don't know if a glossary would have been good with this. Uh, might have helped. What do we mean by apostasy? You know, we use this word a lot, and, and I think there's a lot of words we use that sometimes we just, and in the Bible particularly, we read through them and uh, read through them again, and we don't stop and go to the dictionary or whatever we need to do. What do we mean by apostasy? Er, got, wait a minute, got too many answers. Uh, an erroneous viewpoint, I heard that. What? Departure, that's the word I've got written down. Uh, and I'm sure there are other suitable things, but when we, uh, in other words, if we're, I suppose whether we're talking truth or error, if I'm a, uh, a Catholic and I decide I want to go and be a Baptist, I guess the Catholics would say he, he's an apostate. He, he, uh, he left our system of values and beliefs. And so we, we uh, who feel that we have the truth, I'm, I'm convinced beyond any shadow of the doubt, if we go out and attach to the world or to a church, we have departed. We're apostate. We've crossed over. We've gone from one thing to the other. Uh, is the word apostate or apostasy used in the Bible? And I ask this question 
without being able to give you the answer. I, I just sort of wonder. It, is it? Well, I'm just talking about specifically apostate. Uh, I don't recall, but I, I'm not, not too sure. Apostate. Again, we go to our concordances and, and find out. The idea, as uh, Brother Shelton has, has said here, is there. Uh, and the warnings are copious, and, and particularly probably in the Pauline epistles, that, that look, watch out, be careful, beware. Uh, hundreds of warnings. Don't cross over. Don't depart. Don't go out. Hold fast. So that's the idea of uh, apostate. And we're going to talk as we have here in, uh, I guess, number three, that the theme of the apocalypse is the ultimate destruction of the apostate system. I'll jump ahead. It's somewhere in our notes here, but because it just comes to mind. Uh, where, where and how, was, uh, where did the apostate church or system come from? Absolutely. And that probably should have been one of the principles laid out here. Many people don't understand that. They, they, I guess they think that, well, the Catholics sprung up over here because some person had a bright idea that he would start Catholicism, or the Presbyterians over here, or the Church of God of Abrahamic faith over here. That, that some fellow had a bright idea that, that he wanted to be a leader, and he could develop a few uh, ideas that people would, would uh, attach to and come on. But the uh, apostate system, which is multitudinous, not only in 1989, but in 312 or 529 or 1260 or 1700, the apostate system, which has been uh, the multitudinous leader in religious thought, the truth has been nothing, has existed through all these hundreds of years because somebody in the first century church says we will cross over. We, we got you know better ideas. The truth is too restrictive. It's, there's something wrong with it. We need something new. So bury that in your minds very strongly. It is the illegitimate offspring of truth and error. And when we mix, it's like, I guess, black and white. You can never mix black and white and get white, in paints at least. Uh, you cannot mix truth and error and come up with truth. So any segment of error, whether it's 1% or 50%, mixed in with truth is going to generate error and in whatever degree you may be able to measure it. So mark that down in your minds, that, that this system is a, a illegitimate union of the truth or, or the ecclesia or the woman who decides she wants to merge with pagan or apostate or Christian thought. All right, I want to read. Uh, this is from Volume 1 of Eureka. Uh, I don't suppose many of you have the copies here. Uh, if you want to follow along, fine. But if you want to make a note, that might be fine too. This is relative. If, if I were putting it on my book, I'd put it over here on, on this point number 1 on the inside front cover. It's page 70. It, it, to me, it's nearly impossible to, to pick out a, a segment here and there out of Eureka uh, you feel like it's, it, you're sort of saying, well, this is the most important part, and there's a lot of others that, that just don't mean much, but uh, I have a very difficult time picking out something that, that's uh, uh, just right to the point, and, and, uh, but, but still we have to draw your attention to some of these things. The mystery of God in this apocalypse and symbol. 
that the Apocalypse, being a revelation of the mystery hidden in the prophetic writings, it is to be presumed that it was certainly not omit to exhibit that cardinal element thereof, thou by Paul, the mystery of godliness, which he says is great. Great is the mystery of godliness we just read in Timothy. We find it, therefore, introduced to the attention of the reader in such terms and phrases as God, Jesus Christ, he who is and who was and who is coming, the seven spirits which are before his throne, the Father of Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and ending, the Lord who is and who was and who is coming, the Almighty. I am the first and the last and the living one and was dead and behold I am living for the aeons of the aeons. All of these are terms which this mystery of godliness or God manifestation uh, is concerned with. He goes on to say these are very remarkable and apart from revelation, very mysterious and impenetrable things. There is one who speaks of himself in them as I. And he saith of this I that he was the first, the alpha, the beginning, the Lord, the Almighty. This is intelligible enough and we, are re and, and we readily comprehend that the deity, the self-existing and first cause of all things is meant. In other words, we have to start out with a deity who existed far be, be, uh, beyond which we can't measure the uh, first chapter of Genesis. So we start with deity and we learn of deity's mind and program in, in the succeeding 66 books of the Bible. So deity will identify himself and then go forward from that point to say, how am I going to further manifest uh, and demonstrate my will and purpose to those who will hear it? As we suggested yesterday with Moses, it was 2,500 years before this became recorded. So it had to be through, in my mind, angelic visitation or dissemination of information for 2,500 years when people couldn't pick up a, a Bible or, or a papyrus or whatever it may have been inscribed on. We also recognize in the terms the epithets bestowed by the deity upon himself and the prophets and with a claim to them as his exclusively. But when we come to read the Apocalypse, we find the same terms applied to one who saith, I am the first who was dead. This would very naturally suggest the inquiries, did the deity who is the creator and upholder of the universe ever die? And while he was dead, how was that universe sustained? And seeing that death is an utter destitution of all power, how was life restored to the dead, to the dead creator of all things? These are questions which obtrude themselves upon the thoughtful in view of these apocalyptic sayings. Apart from revelation, they are unanswerable. For the world by wisdom knows not the deity, and none by searching can find him out. Philosophy, then, cannot help us, for philosophy is the system of speculation elaborated by the thinking of the flesh, independently of revelation. A brain destitute of God's thoughts is unenlightened and of necessity incapable of thinking, speaking, and writing correctly concerning deity, either in relation to his essence, mode of existence, system of manifestation, purposes, or requirements. We are compelled, therefore, from very helplessness to accept God's own account of these things, which is revelation, or to remain in hopeless ignorance of the truth. So we're not talking again of the final book of the Bible, we're talking of the entire 
Bible, which is God's voice or word, and that is his revelation. The whole thinking of the Bible is God is saying, here I am, here is my purpose, my mind, my will, and I want it to be understood. It's not that I want to cloud it in a mystery so that no man uh, can understand it. Another thought relative to those who say, well, Revelation is, is too deep to me, the last book, and uh, I'll leave that to somebody else and uh, let them explain it. What you're really saying is I'll let them get the benefit. God has given us all this material, the number of verses or words or chapters or things like this. Why didn't he just give one book? Say, uh, regardless of what we call it, Genesis or Acts or, or uh, James, or why didn't he give us five or ten or some other number? Uh, all I can say is that I believe that the deity inspired this set of books that we call the Bible. That he saw man's need and he says, this is sufficient to reveal my mind and purpose. And our, the same question could be asked, why didn't he give us 300? And you know how uh, Christendom and, and philosophers have gone to these multitudes of books and spent hours and hours and, uh, to explain things which they really don't know how to explain. When we, uh, and again, we have the Bible which we're supposed to search out and compare Scripture with Scripture, the Old Testament with the New. They all, the theories therein coincide. The mind and purpose of God is there. It's consistent. And we, through the understanding of the Gospel, can perceive it. We'd also like to read, uh, relative to this number one, page 91 of the first volume of Eureka. Uh, from that page, it's not the entire page. It's, in fact, uh, as I have it marked here, uh, really I guess I'm not going to read it. I, I just want to, there's a little uh, table on this page which indicates uh, let me see if I can pick out a word. He's talking about being quickened. Uh, and, and the subject of quickening, you may say, well, I don't see that particularly outlined here in this point number one. Uh, we're, again, we're talking about God manifestation. Well, God manifestation really is saying, I will share my nature on, on certain uh, prescribed conditions with those who qualify. That, that's what God manifestation is saying, that's, that's probably not the all-inclusive definition, but, but basically that's a, a fair package. God's saying, I'm going to, to share with others the glories of my nature, uh, which include both physical and, and moral uh, quantities, uh, to those who, who qualify. Over on page 91 of, of volume 1, he gives the uh, process of how this is attained. And it's given in 1 Corinthians 15 and other places in the Bible which involve the resurrection of the dead. And as we know, resurrection uh, is a process. And by the way, the amended are, 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 I think, in very strong error. They will tell us that every place in the New Testament where resurrection is mentioned means that process. In other words, that God is talking about not only bringing a person from the dust of the earth to a standing again position, but he, it also includes the ascent to immortality. Well, the word anastasis means what? Standing again. In other words, if I'm in the death state and I, something causes me to stand up here, have I got immortality? No, I haven't. If, if I did, it would be what? Immortal emergence. 
And we don't believe in mortal emergence. Immortality comes after what? After resurrection and judgment. So once I stand up, there's still a big question mark here. Is it? Am I going to get immortality or am I not? So let's don't spring anybody out of the grave and say he's, he's all clean, pure, and immortal. Uh, well, the word anastasis, which is used, I don't know, uh, quite a few times in the New Testament, uh, in every case, the word means standing again. In other words, it's, it's a relative stage. It's not the end result. It's not God manifestation. So uh, try to bear that in mind. But in this process here, I have actually added one thing to it, which really probably doesn't help a whole lot. But he gives five Greek words. One of, I'm not even sure he gives, a, he doesn't give anastasis, but he infers. Maybe I've added the Greek words. But the first one I have put down, if you want to make notes of these, I think it might be worth your time, is analuthis. Now sometimes you can figure from these words, maybe not from anastasis, well you could have from anastasis if you were, were a real grammarian. What would analuthis mean or suggest to you? Anybody know? Maybe it's not a fair question. <laughs> uh, not unless you maybe have looked at it. Uh, analusis, again, again you could find it in Young or Strong's Concordance, really means, uh, not, not, not what you'd say, analyze is just sort of a rhyming word, that's not it. It means resolution into dust. That's how I see it. And in other words, if I'm never in the grave, I don't need resurrection, do I? The quick are going to be transported somehow to judgment. They're not going to pass through and stand again. They're already standing. If Christ came today and we were all here alive and we went to judgment, we wouldn't be the recipients of resurrection. We're eligible, but we won't be the recipients if we're still alive. So a man must be under the ground or in the death state, uh, resolved to dust, analusis. And the first chapter, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians talks of the subject of resurrection. I would say the speaker, if we want to put it this way, is underground. Now that, that's maybe crude somewhat, but resurrection is a process that we've got to be down under and then it says it is sown or cast out. So if we're under the ground, fine, we're cast out. And many people, as a lot of us know, have misconstrued 1 Corinthians 15, say, well, the resurrection, sowing is throwing down into the earth. It's not. It's casting out so that now we're standing again and we're ready to go forward from that point. So we have analusis, which is the first pro step of the process, which means going into the ground. The second one he lists here as formation of the body from the ashes of the dead. That word is used and it in its, uh, has various uh, endings. Egersis, that's the second word. Analusis, then egersis. Egersis is a word that's used, I believe, in the, in the book uh, Pamphlet Anastasis, which means rebuilding or reconstruction. So if we, if we were able to perform this operation, which of course we're not, we would take the residue in the dust and we would shape this, I guess as the Lord did Adam, into a body so that we'll have future use of that. And then it stands up, much as the 10th chapter of Daniel kind of gives you these processes. So we have analusis, egersis, then we have anastasis. Now if somebody says, well, we, I sort of see anastasis as a, as a simple process of coming forth from the ground, that's fine. Uh, but here's the process he gives. First, the resolution into dust. Second, the formation of the body from the ashes of the dead. Third, the impartation of life. And this is very similar to, 
to the Adamic creation. God formed man out of the dust of the ground. Then what did he do? Breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Was he a living soul before he breathed into his nostrils? No. Well, it could be without getting into a, a big uh, discussion on it that when, when the resurrection takes place and man comes forth, uh, there would be a phase or a step in which life was breathed into his being to make him, uh, to restore him to what he formerly was in terms of intelligence and being. The third step, or it would be fourth in the one I'm giving it, is the appearance at the tribunal of Christ. In other words, we're brought from the ground, we stand up, we're made alive again, we, we haven't got immortality, we must go to the tribunal of Christ. Now that's not a, a, a biological uh, change. The word that I have looked up in the, uh, I guess, Young's, is phaneru, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. -O. And you can probably sense right off the bat that, that sort of rhymes or, or is akin to phanerosis. And what is, what is phanerosis? It's a book. <laughs> What, what's the idea in phanerosis? God manifestation. So if we're, again, brought from the dead, made alive, go over here to the judgment seat of Christ, we're really approaching or, or reaching the uh, ideal or hope of being immortalized or of the same nature and constitution of deity. So, so the idea of transportation to the judgment or appearance of the tribunal of Christ is uh, contained in the word phaneru. And the final step is once we come from the grave, we go to the judgment, what is the final step in the process? Didn't hear it. Raised to a spiritual body. Uh, there's several names or expressions we could use. Uh, there, there's a real good one that we all should be familiar with, or just on our tongues nearly, in the scriptures. That's, that's, that's true, can't, can't argue with that. That wasn't what I was looking for, but that's, that's the same thing. Uh, and it's used in really two different ways. As those of you who can remember Ephesians uh, 2 1. You remember, can anybody sort of quote or start us off there? Quicken. That's the word I'm looking for. Now, the quicken in Ephesians 2 1 is what? Made alive, but at what point? Nope. Nope. Baptism. You're made alive. You're born a new creature. You were dead in Adam. You weren't buried under the ground, but you were, walk, you were walking dead. And you were quickened or made alive. You changed. You were a new creature. So you, you died to Adam and you were born again into Christ. Well, that's a parallel to the quickening at the judgment seat of Christ. That quickening is, is in a sense saying we're going to discord this mortal or corruptible body and we're going to replace it or inject in that the spirit nature or deity nature and this man will then live forever. This is, which we say, first principle teaching of resurrection, mortality of man, need for resurrection, need for the judgment seat of Christ, uh, immortality as a, as a possession of the righteous. First principle doctrine. That is what Revelation teaches us. So that's the quickening process uh, or the God manifestation process that we want to keep on our minds uh, as often as we can. Uh, going back to our title, whoop, we just got about one minute. Uh, it's all right, I, this is not a long sentence. Uh, 
Deserting the Apocalypse. We're, I'm now from the front cover to the first page. We're going to make it, though, because uh, we're going to skip a lot of stuff. Uh, Deserting the Apocalypse. There's a blessing pronounced upon those who read. That's number five under chapter one on that page, but I'm going to uh, talk a little bit about it right now. In the preface to Eureka, and this is extremely important, the pronouncement of, of, of the blessing. And again, it goes back, do we say, oh, too tough for me. I'll leave that to somebody else. And, and uh, you know, I can't understand that and all this kind of excuse making. Uh, then what we're saying, in effect, is let somebody else get the blessing. I, I'll, I'll take what's left, which is, I, I hate to say what it is. But uh, Brother Thomas puts this in a very short word here, and I think he does in a couple of other places in Eureka. Blessed is he that knows accurately. Now, that's better than he that readeth. He that knows accurately, and they that give heed to the words of the prophecy. How would you give heed to it? Right, right. Again, we're not talking of academic knowledge. That's not giving heed to say, oh, Napoleon defeated the Austrians. That's not giving heed to the apostles. Giving heed is letting it sink into your minds and promote a way of life that's meaningful in obedience to the Lord's ways. Give heed to the words of the prophecy and observe narrowly the things which have been written in it, for the time is near. Have you known of people who haven't observed it narrowly? I'm thinking of the preterist and the futurist. I don't think they've observed it very narrowly. When I say narrow, or when he says narrow, I think what he means is accurately and concisely, in other words, get the thing right as, as best we can. Now, blessed is he that readeth. Do you think Billy Graham has read the uh, book of Revelation? Do you think he'll be blessed? And, and if, if not, why not? Well, he's read it, but the word here really doesn't mean read. It doesn't mean just to pick it up and put your glasses on and, and lay a few words out. Narrowly observe and discern and let the thing sink in. So if we don't have the key, which is the gospel... Billy Graham doesn't have the gospel, or any of these televangelists. Those who are fortunate enough to know the gospel have got the key. And even though the thing is shrouded in many cases, if somebody says, well, what's that got to do with a golden girdle? I, I can't understand the golden girdle and can't understand what it's got to do with the gospel. Uh, well, give yourself time, and I think you will. Uh, maybe at this point we can't, but uh, as time goes on, we will. I think I'd better stop now, though. <laughs>